From the Asset Builder headquarters in Dallas, Texas, welcome to Keep It Simple, a show that discusses simple techniques and philosophies to help de-stressify investors around the world. I'm your host, Jared Herzog, and welcome to the show. Today, we're learning from our esteemed veteran registered investment advisor, Adam Morse, and our human economic database and fearless CIO, Michael French. And today, we're talking about the difference between active management and passive. The conversation also sort of bled into index investing, which turned into a very interesting conversation. All right, guys, without further ado, as usual, welcome to the show. Good afternoon, gentlemen. How are you guys doing today? Doing well. How doing well? Fantastic. How well are you doing? Let's go up one to I'm not two. fantastic like Adam, but I'm doing well. Okay. Um, Adam, why are you so fantastic? Well, you just had a delicious brownie. Yeah, I just yeah. had a brownie. I'm I'm riding high. Oh, that sounds that bad. That was a funny joke. <laughs> that sounds bad. Not that it was just a legit brownie from Jason's Deli. Unless they've changed their practices, I'm pretty sure it's just a normal brownie. But it was delicious. Are you throwing out like an, an advertisement for Jason's Deli? They are. Are you paid? Are you paid by uh, Jason's Deli? Unfortunately, cool. no. Maybe though. Maybe after this episode. Wow. Guys, we're talking today about active versus passive investing. Yeah. Um, so if you it, had to define active versus passive, let's start with that. Okay. Okay. An active investor is somebody who, by definition, is in some way trying to predict something about the future and choose option A over option B. So for what? Why? So for instance, you can just believe that Apple is a good company and it's a better company than Amazon and you have $100. So you bet all of your $100 or you invest all of your $100 in Apple. Why? Because you believe that Apple is better than Amazon because you like their products better, because you like fruit and you didn't realize, like it can be a number of things, right? You can be an active investor in the way that you time markets. Market timers are, are people who say, well, I believe that the market has gone up by 15%. So this year it's going to come down by 5%. So I'm going to pull all my money out of the market. I'm going to wait until it comes down 5%. Then I'm going to put it back in. And so that is an active investor. It's somebody who believes that they, for whatever reason, have an intuition about something about the future, about a company, how it will perform, markets overall, something like that. But it's not purely intuition, right, too. They have stats, past history, you know, all these other things. But what what portion of that really is faith? Well, if you ask an active investor, I doubt they would say any of that is faith. I think... um, each active investor adheres to some philosophy that they've built and their belief in that philosophy is rooted in their research, their data, uh, and their experience. Right. Um, I'm sure there are your outlier investors who believe they can just pick up on a, you know, they do have a quote unquote feel for it, but <clears throat> I, I doubt there's much data to support that idea. Um, but I think the, the thing that's important to underline is, you can be a passive investor and still have thoughts about what you think is going to happen in the market. The difference between an active and a passive investor is an active investor makes their investment decisions, their buy and sell choices based off of those assumptions about the future. So that's a big, big difference, right? I, I have opinions on what the market's going to do, but I don't typically make decisions based on that. So I think that's important to underline because everyone has opinions, right? right. It's just a matter of how valid you think those opinions are. Right. 
And so the other thing is when we talk about passive investing, what we're usually, I think when we refer to that, what we're usually saying is somebody who buys an index fund. So people need to understand what an index fund is. And then they just hold it for instead ever. of making trades based on premonition. Right. Or, or instead of making a, a trade based on research that says, okay, so what is an index? We've, we've talked about this before. It's the basket of everything. So the S&P 500, the 500 you know, largest companies in the United States. Well, if you buy an index with the S&P 500 of S&P 500 stocks, what you're doing is you're kind of buying a little piece of the 500 largest companies in the United States. Maybe you look at those companies and you're like, eh, Ford Motor Company, not really a big fan of them. So I would not buy that, but I really love iPhones and I think the iPhone 12 is going to be amazing. So I'm going to buy Apple. No Ford, all Apple. Now you've decided that you, you've kind of just segmented yourself and said, I'm an active investor. The passive investor would have said, I'm going to buy the S&P 500 index and I'm going to hold it. But even in that decision, what you've done is you've said, well, I believe that large U.S. companies are better because I'm going to put all my money in the S&P 500 instead of the Russell 2000, which is a broader index that covers even more companies. So it, to some level, everybody, it's not black and white. I'm active, you're passive. We all fit on some spectrum where we have views and opinions, like Adam said. And right. so how we define that, you know, we, we define it kind of loosely because there's no cut and dry definition where you're either one or the other, you're on a spectrum. Right. But there are still those out there who would advocate one over the other. Um, is there any way to objectively uh, observe the merit of one or the other? Or is it really just based on the individual? I, I think a lot of it depends on your situation. So based on the individual, based on what you're trying to do, um, a hedge fund has different objectives and different risk tolerances than does a 70 year old retiree. So different strategies might fit different situations better, but ultimately when you're investing to boil it down to its simplest, right? If you think about like a line graph, you're starting it at whatever your investment is, let's say a thousand dollars. And at the end of the time period, you want that number to be as high as possible. Right? With the least volatility to get there. With the least if, volatility. If there's to get a there. really jagged line that got you to a point or a really smooth line that got you to the same point, you want that smooth line. Right. And so the idea behind active is essentially saying, well, there's really in the practical world, there's no such thing as a smooth line, right? right. If you're buying equities, it's going to go up, it's going to go down day to day. An active manager says, well, in a perfect world, I can hold the investments on all the upticks. So when you're on the front side of any peak, thinking about that line graph, I'm going to hold the investments. Right before that peak turns into a trough, I'm going to sell the investments. And so I've let my investments grow. And then as the value drops, I'm in cash. So I no longer hold those investments. I don't have to lose any value. And then right at the bottom of that trough, I'm going to buy back in. Rinse and repeat. So the idea is I only ever invest in the up markets, right? That's the 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 golden goose of active investing. A passive manager basically looks at that and says, I don't necessarily think that's possible. I shouldn't even say that. There's a lot of reasons why a passive investor would opt to passively invest rather than active. Yeah. But the underlying theory is you're going to end up either with a better return or less risk or both by holding the investment through the peaks and the valleys. 
All right. So to ask, is there more merit to one or the other? I personally have my beliefs, but you could find an investor out there where you could definitely make a good argument. Active is, is better. So if you, if what we do a lot is we just look at the data, right? And so we would say, okay, well, what percentage of active managers outperformed whatever index they're trying to beat? Right. It's a low percentage. It's not, it's not more than 50%. And so we have all that data that says, well, active managers don't usually. But do they in the short term though, for instance? So you can, you can choose a time period. And so if somebody says, well, I have a one-year time horizon, can this fund beat the index? Some will, some won't. And so, sure. Now, can you choose the one that's going to? I mean, maybe you can, maybe you can't. I don't know. There's There's no real evidence that people are able to do that. If you went even further and said, okay, well, what percentage of active funds are even in business? over a long period of time, say a 20 year time horizon, that number is even lower. So it's not just, we didn't beat the index we were trying to beat. It's, we actually couldn't beat it enough that we just shuttered the fund, returned the money and said, never mind, that strategy doesn't work. So what, what you're seeing there is that active managers even tacitly by closing down their funds. And to be clear, there are multiple reasons why you close down your fund, you retire, you make so much money that you're just like, yeah, I'm done with this. I'm going to go manage my own family money. But for the most part, what's happening is people are saying, well, that didn't work out so well. I was right for the first three years. My fund got really large because people agreed with whatever I was doing. But then my, my picks or my theory, whatever, didn't pan out for several years. And so people started taking their money out of the fund. So the fund closes down. Right. So yeah, when you ask, do active managers beat the market? Let's just use this as an example. There's three of us in this room, right? Let's say on January 1st, we all said, okay, all three of us are going to actively invest. We're going to try to pick stocks. We're going to try to beat the S and P 500. Statistically speaking, because there's three of us, two of us would lose and one of us would win. Okay. Now, That's not a surprise, right? So yes, active managers can beat the market. But the problem is, let's say for this year, it was Jared. Jared beat the market, Michael and Adam lost. Problem is, if we did the same experiment next year, there's no correlation between Jared winning this year and Jared repeating that again next year. One of us is statistically still going to beat it, but it very well might be Michael. So there's- It very well might be Adam the next year. And then to Michael's point, the third year, Adam had to close his fund. Yeah. Now, is that to say that there is nobody in here that's more talented at picking stock? It's just to say that it is statistically more chance than it is a repeatable skill. And so you have to you have to wrestle with that if you're an active investor. You have to wrestle with, am I the one that has cracked the code? Let's say that you had strong views on Brexit. Okay. okay? If Britain leaves the EU... These are going to be the financial implications. Because of these financial implications, this company is going to be worth more. That company is going to be worth less. You know, however you would evaluate that. Well, so you buy or sell stock. Let's say you buy stock of companies that you think are going to do well if Brexit leaves the EU. 
the vote happens and you find out Brexit's going to leave the EU. Yay. Okay. So you were right about a series of events that said, you know, Brexit will leave the EU, et cetera, et cetera. And so maybe there are these big things happening in the world where you guessed right, Brexit did leave, I'm sorry, England did leave the EU instead of stay. Well, you had to guess what was going to happen. You had to predict a vote. You had to do all these things. And then you had to do some financial analysis around whether a company would benefit or not. So it's not... You had to time it properly. You had to time it properly. And then you had to assume that a lot of other people were betting against you. In other words, that the price of these, these companies were depressed because other people thought, well, no, Brexit's probably... Uh, I'm sorry, the, the England's probably going to stay in the EU. So if everybody else was making the same bet you were betting, even if you were right, you're not going to really see a pop in that stock price. So it's just stuff like that. Like there's a lot of stuff that has to happen for an active manager to always be right. So when you do a postmortem and you listen to a lot of these people talk about, well, why did I eventually shutter my fund? Many, many times it's about timing. It's, well, eventually I would have been right, but I ran out of time or money to hold on to that bet. And that's happened throughout history. We have a a lot of things we could point to that we won't because you don't want to blow people up. But there are people that we're close to that we know who we would point to, wow, you kind of created a financial crisis over there because you bet on something that in the end you were right. Yeah. Your bet was correct, but you ran out of time uh, for that bet to pay off. So, so if, if one of you had to play devil's advocate and advocate for active manager, like play an active manager right now, how would you do it against passive? Could you? Oh yeah. Look, okay. So here's the thing. All these people who are passive are basically just out there following along. I have one good idea. And all I have to do is have one good idea. And while markets are efficient, there are inefficiencies in markets. How do we know that's true? Because markets move. If markets were perfect, like if we all believed, if we all had perfect information, which is what you know, index investors will tell you, oh, everything's baked into the market, then why would the price ever move? It would just be stable. So for instance- Well, because everyone isn't passively investing. Prices which, move because they're active investors. So, so for instance, every month when an index is reconstituted, I should be able to take advantage of that. Now, as an active investor, if I make that argument, I have to make the argument that I can take advantage of it better than everyone else. Or if you looked at WeWork, we've talked about this before. WeWork was obviously a real estate company that was masquerading as a technology company. It wasn't publicly traded, but you should have known it wasn't worth whatever ridiculous valuation it was saying it was worth. So in hindsight, can you build a huge portfolio of companies that I would have done this, I should have done this, I would have done this? Yes. And then can I go out there and convince you that I have found the next whatever, of course I can. That's actually a lot easier of a story to sell because you always have a new story. You always have the next best thing, the next big hit that you're, that you're selling people. And people are wanting to know that they're going to beat Joe down the street. 
So have you ever heard of, <clears throat> they talk about how like at, at the state fair or something or at like a school fundraiser, they'll have like a oh, jar with their names in it, right? Guess, yeah. And the so average, like they ask yeah. you like, okay, how many are in there? And I might be mm-hmm. way off, right? I might be 10 over, 10 times over what the number is, but they ask 150 people or whatever yeah. the number is. And they're like shockingly close. Yeah. Okay. The average so if you look shockingly at, close. <clears throat> you looked at active investors, whether you're managing an active fund or you're just, you know, at home managing your own portfolio, buying stocks. What people usually forget, to use Michael's example, if everyone was making the same bet that I was making, they all like the same stock, I wouldn't be able to make that decision because no one is selling it. Everyone's trying to buy it. So when you're an active manager, it's a zero-sum game. Every time I buy something, someone is selling it to me, and every time I sell something, someone is buying it. So you boil that down. Essentially what they're saying is for every take I have, someone has the exact opposite take of what I'm saying or needs cash. If they're selling something, maybe they have a cash cash or they have options, but on a market wide scale, right? Someone finds that security attractive at the price it is at. They've deemed I'm willing to do the opposite action of what you're doing at that price for that holding. Right. And so if you're an active manager, if I'm buying or if I'm selling, what I am betting on is that I am on the right side of that judgment every time, or at least more than half of the time such that I will outperform the market. What a passive, and, and that's like saying, I'm going to be closer to the number of you know Skittles in the jar than the group. Right. And the passive investor is saying, I'm going to crowdsource that information. I'm basically yep. going to trust the knowledge of the masses to decide what the proper price of the market as a whole should be. And so if you're passive, you're just saying, I'm going to go with the data that shows if I get a whole bunch of guesses on the number of Skittles in the jar, that's going to be closer than my one guess. But maybe I'm the one guy that, you know, I'm a rocket scientist and, you know, maybe I am really good at, like, I have a weird skill where I can look at a jar and be like, oh. But what contributes to that skill, I guess, is what I keep trying to figure out. Like, how are active managers good at it? Typically, it's traditional analysis. So they're looking at, you know, a company's... If, if a company's going public, they're looking at their S1. If they're looking at Apple, they're looking at their quarterly you know, uh, docs. They're looking at cash flows, earnings per share. They're evaluating a company's financials and using that data to project forward what they think the company's going to do. Or you look at a company that's located in Thailand or yep. Lebanon. You might have, uh, I mean, there are, there are funds that are just focused on Asia and they have people over there and they're traveling around China and they are evaluating things like factory output and prices, rental prices for uh, domestic residences and, and they tie that to, well, if rents are going up, that must mean more people are moving in here. And these are the three companies that are con, you know, manufacturing goods in this province. And so who are those companies selling to? And, and it's just, hey, do you have somebody in China over there doing that analysis? No, you don't. And so they're able to sell and say, hey, we have specific insights into this country or uh, back in late nineties, people would say, I'm a technology analyst. And and what that meant was I understand routers better than the next guy because I have an electrical engineering master's degree from MIT 
And that gives me a better insight into why this router will perform better than that router. Those routers are going to break over time. Nobody's going to want to use that company. They're going to want to use this company's routers instead. And so they're going to be better. Here's the thing. Somebody else would come behind that guy and, and say, how, yeah, how long is that knowledge good a, for a, a demonstrable right. skill? In other words, how often can you monetize that knowledge right. to find the inefficiency? Right. And then, so the next person might come along though, even after them and say, while you are correct, these routers are going to break, blah, blah, blah. The, the shelf life of a router or the life cycle of a router is, you know, less than what you think it is. So it doesn't matter. And so they would go back and forth or they would have debates. But people, for instance, there was a time when people were looking at railroad companies and what what does a railroad fundamentally do? It transports things, right? At some point, there were people out there who looked at real railroad companies and said, hey, you know what these people do? They run their, those, those train lines, they run right through the middle of cities. And that Real estate is really valuable. We should buy railroad companies for real estate purposes. I don't care what we ship. I don't care what we do. So those people had a special insight. It was unique. It was a different perspective. Did it work? Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, sometimes, but but to Adam's point. That's like saying I played golf once and shot a 72. It does not mean I'm going to shoot a 72 tomorrow. I can just easily shoot a 110. They had a fish, whatever you want to use as your analogy. They had an aha moment. And and it doesn't mean that the aha moment didn't happen. Good for you. But, I mean, unless you're going to replicate the aha moment. and, and, And so that's where you look and you say, for instance, how could I sell if I was an active... I would wait until I was in the top 10% of funds for performance versus the index. You know, if you go to Morningstar and you look and you see what's the ranking, well, if I'm in the top 10%, I just go market myself. Hey, I'm in the top 10%. And then I'd be really quiet when I'm in the bottom 10%. I'd wait until I'm back in the top 10%. I'd be like, hey, look at me. I'm in the top 10%. Because you're going to be at the top and you're going to be at the bottom if you're, you know, if you're... like, like Adam said, if you're you going to, some enough. people are going to guess too many beans. Some people are going to guess too few beans. So when you guess really close to the number, you're like, Hey, I would advertise that and say, look at me. I was right about this thing that I said. And doesn't mean I'm going to be right tomorrow, but a famous example is uh, John Paulson, 2008. Mm-hmm. So he actually went out and said, Hey, you know what? These people who are buying homes, can't all afford these homes that they're buying. So this subprime mortgage thing is a big problem. There's going to be a meltdown. Not only that, but he figured out how to uh, construct an investment philosophy that took advantage of the crash. Wow. So John Paul, you know, you look at him and you're like, wow, Paulson's amazing. He's just brilliant. He's, wow, we should all just put our money into his fund. And you could, and you would have done really well. But, you know, his next big bet was on something that didn't pan out as well. And it was gold prices are going to go up, I think, was his, his next big bet. And I forget if he shuttered his fund. I'm not sure exactly what happened, but it didn't pan out as well. And it doesn't mean that he's not a brilliant investor, that maybe most of his ideas aren't good. Or maybe you would say, hey, he was so right on one out of three that even though he's only right one out of three times, it still pans out. Um yeah. And so you can you can absolutely make the case for people to say, "Hey, be an active investor." If that ri- what you just described is a risk profile, right? Are you comfortable with that trade off? And and there are people that absolutely are. And so for them, 
Excellent, right? They've got a, to tease that example, one in three shot of outsized returns that pay for the two misses, and that's great. So it's not a question of, of legitimacy or they're both going to generate returns over time. It's just a matter of making sure, like we talk about all the time on this podcast, making sure that what you're doing is suitable for what you're trying to accomplish in your situation. So what Adam's saying is true. If let's say that you have one out of three years that you actually outperform the market. Okay. Okay. Well, if going back to our earlier uh, kind of visualization where this line is moving upwards to the right, like I start with a thousand dollars. So let's say that in three years I have uh, turned my thousand dollars into $1,500. Okay. Well, if I did that by first losing half my money, then doubling that, then having a 50% return, that was a lot of volatility versus a person who went from a thousand to 1200 to 1350 to 1500. They just had kind of a steady rise up. If they both ended up at the exact same place, you want that guy who's got that steady line. Right. So the reality is that the guy who loses big two years, but then really wins massively large in that third year should not give you $1,500. He should instead be giving you 1700 because he had a lot more volatility. So as you age, if you think about it, instead of just in one year increments, think about it in decades. As you age, you don't have multiple decades to ride these up and downs. You need things that are more stable because you're actually going to need that money and you need to spend it. Or you need to have a certain balance when you retire. So you can't, you can't be you know, sitting through massive losses right. for three years in hopes that you're going to hit it big in year four because you might need that money in those first three years. Right. Yeah, so it's, it's a different just, investment philosophy. It's just a, it's a matter of your situation. Like to counter that, you look at like venture capital, right? Like venture capital is the penultimate active manager because not only are they picking the companies by hand that they want to invest in, they're picking companies typically that have little to no track record right. and they're very high risk. Right. But it works for them because to Michael's point, they do have decades mm -hmm. to ride those peaks and valleys. And they're just looking at potential risk versus potential reward. The potential risk is they lose all the money they've invested. There's a cap on that. The potential reward is outsized returns yep. because all they got to do is hit one or two of those. Yep. And they found the next Apple or Uber or whatever the case is. And so for them, great. Active management works. Right. It's just peachy. Right. So it's really not a matter of which is better, it's which is better for you. Mm -hmm. Exactly. That's yep. it. Yeah. Correct. Use the right tool for the job. Anything else you guys want to add on to that? I think we're good. All right. Thank you guys so much. We'll see you in a week. Sounds we'll be good. Back. Thanks. Thank you. This podcast is intended for educational purposes only and is not to be construed as an offer, solicitation, recommendation, or endorsement of any particular security, product, or service. For more information, visit assetbuilder.com.